Well, today we've already had a, just a splendid service of worship, haven't we, with baptism and uh, new members joining. And uh, when we think about membership in the church, we think about responsibility of church membership. And we're all reminded of that as we listen to those vows of membership. But one of the things that every one of you are responsible for, and in particular me and the other officers of this church, is that we are to have a true ministry. We are to have the kind of ministry that is laid out in Holy Scripture, and we are not to deviate from it. We have a responsibility and an honor to keep the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that began going, being proclaimed at the day of Pentecost and will end only when he comes back. That is our calling. That is our responsibility, and it's everyone's calling, and it's everyone's responsibility. Well, the Apostle Paul is going to sort of look at that point of what does it mean to be called to the true ministry, uh, and he's going to speak about his example in 2 Corinthians. Remember, one of the, the, uh, the key issues in 2 Corinthians is the Apostle having to defend the ministry against the so-called super-apostles or false prophets, false teachers, the sophists, the philosophers that are out there making a buck off of making speeches, and they've been very critical of Paul, and the Corinthian church sometimes has joined in to that criticism. But it's important for us to understand that our call is something that's given to us from God himself. A.W. Tozier, the great Christian Missionary Alliance pastor, said this, Let every man abide in the calling wherein he is called, and his work uh, will be as sacred as the work of the ministry. It is not that what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. So we're going to go deeper. We're going to go behind the actions of so much of the ministry, and we're going to look at the motives behind that ministry. And it will be our desire that we look at this passage and we declare that great battle cry, the Protestant Reformation, when we're done, sola deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And may we fulfill that calling. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in faith, we turn to you. Uh, sometimes the Apostle Paul, uh, with his repeated clauses and, uh, and challenging discussion, is a little difficult for understand. So we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to fill us, to explain things to us, to show us wonderful mysteries that are uh, right before us in Holy Scripture. So in faith, we turn to you now and pray that your word would, uh, would really transform us into the image of Christ. And for those who don't know the Lord, that they would come to know the Lord and the majesty and the awesomeness of his grace and his power on this Lord's day. In Christ's name, amen. Please do turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to break it down to six different uh, sections there, and you'll see those listed for you in your home group helps insert. There might be uh, an easy way for you to kind of follow along. So because it's going to be broken down so many ways, I want to go ahead and read the verse in its entirety uh, before we get started this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy... We do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So according to this passage, we see really six different elements here that uh, kind of exemplify and describe true ministry. And again, each one of us, even to the youngest one that's capable of being able to think through this, we have a responsibility, we have a right to defend uh, Christianity and a privilege to do so, but also a responsibility. So to be able to defend Christianity, what is true ministry, you need to be able to understand some of these components. The first component here we see here is that there is a merciful calling. Paul says here, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Of course, Paul is famous for his therefores. He's already given some wonderful theological points. He makes a transition statement here, and that statement really goes back to uh, chapter 3 and verse 18 where Paul said, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit, which we've kind of chosen as the theme verse for our entire 2 Corinthians uh, 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 walkthrough for this, uh, this next year, uh, which we'll see on the banner back here. But it's that transformation. That's really why we come on Sundays. We want, to be, we want to look at Jesus so much and love him so much and serve him so much that we become like him. And in the case of the Christian, that really is possible. It's slow, it's awkward, it's painful, and it is not, it, it is not consistent but it really is possible that we can be transformed into this image because the devil's veil that is over our face has been removed in Christ Jesus. And he says here, since we've received this, mer- mer- this ministry, Paul recognized that what he has has been given to him by God. You, you know, so often we think of riches and success and, and good looks and whatever it might be. You fill in the blank of the things that you fantasize back uh, out. But you know what you really need <laughs> more than anything? What would really be the greatest blessing God could help give you would be contentment. Contentment. The content man has joy no matter what he has or what he doesn't have. And he's not always looking and making comparisons. So, and, and part of the reason, part of the way we can get contentment is we realize we've received so much from God. Even the pain that's come into our, 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 our lives is, is in a sense a gift from God. It is meant to transform us into the image. So as we've received mercy, Paul, Paul just never got tired. He never got tired of just the wonder of being uh, given mercy. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I thank Jesus Christ who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and violent aggressor. Those are strong terms. Yet I was shown mercy because I've acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Wow. Don't you want to be like that man? Every woman that lost her husband under the cruelty of the of Saul of Tarsus, every child that was stripped away from his parents, every, uh, every man that was thrown in jail under the cruelty of the terrorist, Saul of Tarsus, none of that was wasted. None of that was wasted. Because the Paul, could remember, every, Paul could remember every one of those faces and he could recognize the mercy and the grace that he had received from Christ and he became the champion of grace. 
even at times when he stood by himself against the powers of legalism and ceremonialism and everything else that people think they need to do to get to God. And he says here, we do not lose heart. Paul never gave up. He never compromised. He never became a coward. But sometimes we do. <laughs> you know, Paul's like, I've mentioned before, you know, I love reading Christian biographies, but sometimes I get halfway through and I think, I just can't measure up to this guy or this gal. You know, there's just this perfection out there, and they're always talking about, you know, how wonderful they are and all the lives they saw saved and all these things, souls they saw saved. And, and, and Paul's kind of the same way. Paul even says, be an imitator of me, all right? And sometimes we can be a little overwhelmed by the, the Apostle Paul's example. So I feel like it's necessary to throw in someone who did compromise but still finished to the end. If you want to see a picture of Thomas Cramner, he's uh, the, the, uh, the writer of the Book of Common Prayer, really kind of the first, I guess, Anglican um, archbishop. His picture's on my study wall over there with Calvin and Knox and some others. But Thomas Cramner, when Bloody Mary took over, the, the, the uh, Protestant Revolution, had, uh, Revolution uh, uh, Reformation had really made headway in Great Britain, and then Bloody Mary took over, and she was Catholic, and uh, she hated Protestantism and felt it was a... Uh, uh, kind of a, a crusade of hers to stamp it out uh, in Britain. So she had uh, some of the great Protestant reformers, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cramner arrested. And they took uh, Latimer and Ridley out and burned them at the stake in front of Cramner so that he would see what happens to crazy reformed Calvinistic Protestants like you. Uh, and then they threw him back in jail. And over time, he decided to compromise. He decided he was down, he was exhausted, he had seen his friends suffer at the stake, and he decided to recant. Uh, and uh, he had written to uh, one of his friends uh, uh, with the last name of Martyr who had fled to the continent under all the persecution. I pray that God may grant that we may endure to the end. Uh, and yet, in some ways, he didn't. So he caved to pressure. He submitted to the papal authority, and then he was required to explain himself to a, on a pulpit at uh, University Church in Oxford. And then, to their surprise, they thought they had, catch, they, they had caught the big fish. I mean, he was the head guy, right? And he's going to recant, and he's going to bring us back into the papacy. And he said, I recant everything I said. I do not submit to the authority, and I curse this hand that signed that recanta uh, recantation. They grabbed him from the pulpit, they took him to the stake and began to burn him, and he thrust that hand that signed the recantation into the fire and said, O oh, unworthy hand. Then he looked to heaven and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and uh, in uh, reference back to Stephen, the first martyr of the church. He compromised, he caved. He's not like the Apostle Paul, didn't have this perfect faith. But God preserved him to the end, just like he will do you. So while we go to school and the Apostle Paul and we follow his example, the reality is some of us are going to be cramners. Some of us are going to fail. But, that's, but that ministry's calling is still there, and we will finish at the end. Now we see here the emphasis is on obedience here, verse 2a. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. That idea of shame is literally means the hidden things of shame. These are the things you do undercover, you do in darkness, that you do in, in secret, disgraceful, dishonorable deeds uh, that, are, that are hidden, that are hypocritical of the lifestyle that you profess, that sort of thing. Paul understood this. He understood this. 
Again, I want you to place yourself in his sandals. You think about the the zeal of the Apostle Paul that drove him to go, not just in Judea, but to go up to Damascus, to travel to Damascus to have Jews arrested, brought back to, to Jerusalem in chains for trial. He was consumed with pleasing God through acts of violence. And what happens? He's on the road. The light comes. The light's the light's brighter than the sun, and the sun over there is really bright <laughs> and shines. He gets blinded. He falls, and the voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He asked a reasonable question. He's a lawyer. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. <gasps> Can you imagine the crash of emotions that he experienced at that time? He was actually working against the very uh, person he thought he was working for. His whole life had been devoted to the destruction of the followers of Jesus. And Jesus took it personally. As God said, you are, you are poking the apple of my eye, Saul. And then he had three days of blindness and hunger and thirst to think about it. And he was saved. And the Apostle Paul, with all of his... Uh, amazing uh, uh, genealogy and education, everything else, would cry out in Romans 7, wretched man that I am. That's one of our favorite verses, isn't it? If Paul said that, we can, we can be grateful uh, that we have companionship and feeling wretched at times. But see, these hidden things of shame, these are things that are now to be done away with. We're to walk in obedience Romans 6 reminds us of that. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You know, it's, uh, it's remarkable. I, I, I came to know the Lord almost at age 20. And um, the problem with coming to faith later on is, um, is that you have photographs of what your life was like before you came to faith. And I remember going up in the attic of my parents' house once I started having children. Once they, you know, there were some pictures of me just being a doofus. <laughs> I didn't want them to see. So I just had to go through and call through my, my photographs, you know. And as I'm looking through these photographs, I'm thinking of these shameful things, the shameful way, this lifestyle that I, that I was just so consumed with that I'm now just embarrassed of. And it was a good reminder, I don't want to go back. Holiness is a lot more fun than drunkenness. There's a lot more pleasure in worship than there is in revelry. So let's not go back. Obedience is part of this calling. You've got to obey. You know, the older I get, I think the more I preach grace because of my own foibles and sins. And I want other people to know that wonderful grace. But never, never understand the preach, misunderstand the preaching of grace from this pulpit does not mean you have a right to disobey. You will not experience that grace and enjoy the pleasures of that grace if you walk in sin. You have a responsibility to walk as a child of God because you've been adopted as a child of God. And it is not for a child of God to wallow in mud puddles and to make a fool of himself. 
and to cheat on his wife and to be a drunk and to be a liar and to be a gossip. So never, never, never take the emphasis on grace, which is an important emphasis, which is Paul's emphasis, as an excuse to sin because you have a responsibility to walk in righteousness. And now you have a power, an ability to be able to walk in righteousness. Don't get on the antinomian tendency of this age and that what you hear in many of the churches. Many of the churches are embarrassed to preach sin and righteousness and obedience. I like what um, I like what one commentator says, a repentance that does not involve turning from sin is foreign to Scripture. It's just foreign to Scripture. Paul was never cavalier about sin. He understood how important it was, and that helps you understand how important grace is. Now we see here a devotion to truth in uh, 2B here, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestations of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. One of the things that was a criticism of of Paul is that his preaching sort of lacked popular appeal. You, you, you know, Paul Paul preaches, he just it's just sort of rough, and, and he doesn't tell people what they want to hear. And if you want to make a buck in this business, you got to tell people what they want to hear. And that was one of the criticisms of the Apostle Paul. He's making a defense here. He says, we are not going to be walking in craftiness. He told the Corinthians that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I, I would never want to be a church officer in a church This pastor was a schlickmeister, <laughs> a manipulator, where honey just came off of his lips. Because I, I'm just telling you, it's going to attract non-Christians but they're going to get a little bit of a dose of Christianity to inoculate against the real thing. And regrettably, there's semi-Christian churches all over the land because, because people do adulterate the Word of God, and they do it deliberately in order to make the sermon more palatable, more easy to accept. That idea of adulterating uh, comes from the extra-biblical word, which means the corrupting the goal of or wine with inferior ingredients. In other words, you don't water down the Word of God. You don't water down the Word of God. Now, your responsibility is to do that individually. Your responsibility, too, is to make sure this pulpit never does that. That's why we encourage, we, we give you an insert with the word of, word of God. We read the Word of God. We sing the Word of God. We pray the Word of God. You've got the Word of God in your lap or on your phone in front of you. It keeps us honest. One reason why we have the five solas of the Protestant Reformation on that front door is to keep us from compromising those five solas. They're literally bolted to the front door, you know? Reason why you've got Bibles. I mean, that's so old-fashioned. Everybody has their phone on their, on, I mean, their phone on their Bible, their Bible on their phone. We want Bibles in the pulpit, and for no other reason, to help keep us honest. We're not going to water down the Word of God and which is so, so popular. You know, and the thing is is, is, is there's this kind of mystical fascination that if people don't understand what I say, then they know that I've got some kind of hidden mystery. That was the medieval church, right? Our services are all going to be in Latin so that they don't know what we're saying. That's really holy. What? What? 
No, Martin Luther translated the scriptures into German so that the Germans couldn't read it. Great example here, uh, Ken Hughes mentions this. Uh, Henry Irving was kind of a controversial uh, Victorian actor. He actually was uh, uh, given full knighthood, so I guess he wasn't that controversial. But uh, uh, he's got an interesting uh, background, too. He was, he was real, you know, a lot of actors. He was into himself a lot. Uh, and uh, he evidently had so many uh, uh, things about his personality and the way he spoke and everything that he was actually the inspiration behind Bram Stoker's Dracula. I'm thinking, who's this knight actor? <laughs> you know, that, that looks like Dracula. But Bram Stoper worked with him, and actually he was part of the inspiration behind Count Dracula. Well, Henry Irvin did a version of Shakespeare, and one of the reviews uh, reviewers at the time, this is probably 1890, said this of, of, of his version of Shakespeare. His productions at the Lycrim Theater, London, interpreted Irving rather than Shakespeare. Everything was done with lavish care. Nothing was cut except Shakespeare. And the problem is, is when our church is based on entertainment, eloquence, sound, music, and everything else, you may walk out realizing that the only thing that was cut out of that service of worship was Jesus Christ. But our calling is to make sure Jesus Christ is front and center of our worship. And the contrary was that we have a manifestation of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the truth of God. Now we see here there's a conflict with Satan, verse 3 through 4. Uh, he's going to, of course, throw that in because it's so real, and a lot of us understand the reality of spiritual warfare, don't we? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, to those in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's interesting, we see this you know, from verse 13, uh, uh, from verse 3, 16, where Paul says well, people are veiled, we're veiled in our understanding of God, and you've known that to be true, haven't you? I mean, if you try to share the gospel with people, or even you might remember your past experience, you just didn't understand, you just couldn't connect the dots. There, there's a supernatural thing that has to occur, and God has to take that veil away. Paul says in 3.16 that it's taken away when people turn to Christ because the God of this world, who is Satan, of course, he's not a true God. He's over the realm of just the, not the universe, but of the whole world. C.S. Lewis does a great job of portraying Satan as the God of this world in his, uh, his science uh, uh, trilogy, of out, of, out of the silent planet. The reason why Earth is silent is because the devil was in rebellion with all the other angels of the other planets and of, and of God because the word doesn't come out of the earth because the devil holds it in his power. It's a brilliant uh, description of what this might look like. But he's, he's, he's criticizing here the, the world's systems of philosophy, psychology, education, sociology, ethics, economics, this great Babylon that is set up against the church of Jesus Christ. But it will fall with the power of truth because you're on God's side. The devil's nothing compared to God. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's a good thing to remember when you go head-to-head with someone who hates you and hates your God, isn't it? It, it's, it helps me, instead of getting all worked up and, you know, 
it helps me, first of all, not to watch the news much. <laughs> but if you're watching the news and you get all worked up and you just see this evil that's being portrayed as good, it helps to think those people are prisoners of war. They are in the devil's dungeons. And if it wasn't by the, for the grace of God, I would be in that same situation. So they need your grace as well. He's blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they will not see the light of the gospel. One commentator says this, Contemporary critics argue for a subtler, less offensive approach to presenting the gospel. Preaching sin, repentance, judgment, and hell is out. User-friendly churches are in. Worship services give way to entertainment designed to make non-believers feel comfortable and not threatened. The thinking is that they will then be open to considering Christ. Underlying much of modern evangelism is the heretical idea that anyone can and will respond to the gospel if it is presented in an ingenious enough way. That view seeks, sees believers as consumers for whom the gospel must be cleverly packaged in order to make the sale. Roy Clement says this, the preacher is the salesperson. It is his job to overcome consumer resistance and persuade people to buy. Isn't that sad? We've reduced the church of Jesus Christ in America to Walmart. As majestic, as powerful as it is, that Christ considers it his bride, it's become a commodity. But not for us, not for those who love truth, not for those who are called by God, not those who embrace uh, true, true understanding of Christianity. And it just happens. God does this. John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father sent him draws him. Uh, Father, sorry, Father who sent me draws him. God's the one who saves. Now, he's not going to do it if he doesn't, they don't get the gospel. I mean, there needs to be a preacher. He uses, I mean, he condescends to use us to bring people to salvation. But he's the one who saves. And that's, that's all over Scripture. You know, I'm even getting uncomfortable with the term Reformed Christianity because the more I look at it, that's just biblical. It's just gospel. We just got this weird bent, weird for a lot of people, that we just love the glory of God. We just love the glory of God, and that's what we're all about because he's the one who saves. C.S. Lewis, wonderful testimony. C.S. Lewis, you know, he went from a materialist to a, to a, a deist to a Christianity, and he said he was, he was, I just love this image of C.S. Lewis, he went tweed, you know, um, tobacco stains on his teeth, I don't know, riding with his brother, Warney, in the sidecar of a motorcycle. You know, holding his hat, you know. <laughs> and uh, and he's go, they go to the zoo. They go to the zoo. They're going to go visit the zoo one day. And he said, at some point in time, I got converted. By the time he got to, he wasn't a Christian when he left. And by the time he got to the zoo, he just realized, I believe. I believe. I'm a Christian. I believe. I love that. No manipulation. Just a Holy Spirit. Bam! Just a Holy Spirit. That was, well, that was heretical. The miracle of the Holy Spirit coming into that dead man's body and that field of bones coming to life, rattling together and creating C.S. Lewis <laughs> the way we know and love C.S. Lewis. It's really remarkable. It's the condition of the hearer that's the problem, not the, the brilliance or the technique of the preacher. Praise God for that, i got to tell you. And then there's got to be a humble approach here, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus and ourselves as bondservants. There's a real temptation when you're the upfront person to, to kind of think a little too highly of yourself. 
And, uh, and I think God fixes that in a lot of ways by bringing you pretty low and making you deal with a lot of the issues. But uh, as one commentator said, the, the, the preacher should be self-effacing, not self-exalting. Again, going back to, uh, if going forward to 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, On my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Aren't you glad for that? Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul, you know, it's interesting, Paul, Paul didn't do what we do sometimes. You, you're going through a trial, a tribulation, a difficulty. You start giving God your resume. You know, God, why am I going through this? Look at all the things I did for you. Look at all the wonderful, look at I teach Bible study, and you know, I had kids or whatever, and go to church on Sunday, and I tithe, and, you know, I uh, don't throw my garbage out the front window. You know, all these things that you tell God, uh, you know. And uh, Paul didn't do that. Paul says, everything that comes my way, everything is just going to make me stronger because God's in charge of everything, even the difficult things. We just have this consuming interest. Y'all look at the back of your bulletin. To my knowledge, this has been on every bulletin that our church has had since July of uh, 2007. There's a little box there. You ever notice that? Again, we print it on the bulletin to, to keep us from becoming idiots, <laughs> which happens sometimes. And the first line is, this worship service is a worship of God and not man. And it goes on from there. You're welcome to read it. It's a worship of God about not man. Now, it's not that we just ignore people and we don't, we're not a loving environment. We're not seeking to build community and have fellowship and all that, but... As opposed to what the world is saying, you are not the center of the universe. God is. And you know what? I'm convinced of this. The true Christian really wants that. They're so overwhelmed by God's grace, by God's mercy, his kindness towards them, they want all the glory to be reflected towards him. So we actually put it on the bulletin because we, we, we know our tendency, our sinful tendency is to want to get some glory ourselves. And it helps keep us at least somewhat uh, honest here. Then we see here a God-glorifying foci on uh, verse uh, 6 here. For God said, let light shine out of darkness as the one who's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul just can't write enough to give the glory to God, can he? He actually brings in a creation illustration here. Uh, uh, as God created the lights of the heavens to illumine the world, he brings the light of the heaven to illumine our soul. John 8, 12 says, I am the, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Nothing less than creation power is the same power that, that converts a Tony Sizemore. That enters into her and, and tells her that she is now a child of God. As we are approaching the holiday season, you might remember that wonderful prophecy of Isaiah 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times... He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness will see a great light. And those who lived in a dark land, the light will shine on them. 
Those of us who got, later, who got saved later in life remember what that darkness was like. Why in the world would you ever want to go back? Why would you ever want to go back? He says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of God. This, if, you were, if we were to add a, a, a sense of sola to the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, it, it might be this one. It's not really a sola, but corum deo. You know this expression, corum deo? It means to live before the face of God. This is your calling, Christian. This is your calling. You are to live corum deo. R.C. Sproul said this, The big idea of Christian life is corum deo. Corum deo captures the essence of the Christian life. This phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To, give, to live corum deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. Next to this idea, our other goals and ambitions become mere trifles. That's it. That's it. And what I love about this is that the Apostle Paul, he really got it. You think about all his imagery of light and vision and, tr- and the veil being removed and all this kind of stuff. He got that because he remembers well what it was like to be blind. You think about God, the way God works in different people. I mean, uh, how did he get Paul's attention? I mean, you think about comparison. He made Zechariah mute. He gave leprosy to King Uzziah. He turned Nebuchadnezzar into a cow or acted like a cow. But, but why did he make Paul blind? Because he was so proudful, prideful of the things he didn't see correctly. He just needed three days in total darkness for him to see the light. And he never got over it years and years later. Folks, that's true ministry. That's true ministry. And as Paul has given us these truths, we need to be giving truths to other people. They really are relying on you. We're becoming a minority, genuine Christians. So I would send you out of this place with this wonderful light, with this wonderful truth, and understanding your calling You might have been called to be a physician, a college student, a mom, or whatever it might be. But your primary calling is to be a herald of the truth of Jesus Christ. He gives you power. He's given you a church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations. Father, we bless you for your word, and we're just so challenged by it, God. We're exhausted from our failures, but we thank you, God, that none of them sneak up on you. You're a God of grace and a God of mercy. Let us be so overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy that you've given us that we just cannot keep silent about it when it comes to others. Open the doors. Let us see souls saved and sanctified for the glory of God and the expansion of the kingdom of God. In 